1: Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. I'm your host, Dr. David O'Brien. On this episode, I'm talking to Dr. Lois Lee about Recognizing the Non-Religious, Reimagining the Secular, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Lois Lee, who is Director of the Non-Religion and Secularity Research Network, about her new book, Recognizing the Non-Religious, Reimagining the Secular, which was published by Oxford University Press in 2015. So, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Happy to be invited.
1: it will be interesting to know a little bit about your academic background and how you ended up writing the book, um, and where it fits within your kind of wider intellectual trajectory. Before we get into the specifics of what the book is about,
0: okay. Well, so my kind of primary interest has been in political theory uh, and how political theories translate into political ac- political action or don't translate, as the case may be. So I started off doing a history BA at. Leeds, and I specialised in 20th century political theory, um, political thought and then I moved into sociology at Cambridge and throughout that work I've always thought of myself as someone who was interested in politics and political action but I've always been writing about religion and the non-religious as well. So that started with my undergraduate research which was about um, the socialist uh, theory of theories of um, R.H. Jorney, the well-known Christian um, socialist and Cambridge historian, and uh, the Webbs um, who founded uh, LSE, again, well-known Fabians and so on. And I was comparing their political work, but what I ended up arguing was that in order to understand their politics, you need, needed to really understand their religious and also non-religious views. Um, and that to some extent, the kind of cultural differences involved with these positionings was amplifying differences that have then been taken to be um, very sort of serious differentiations in socialist theory in the UK. So that's quite a good illustration of how my kind of interests have translated into thinking about religion and non-religious cultures as well. And I guess the book comes about in a similar way, um, writing exploring ideas in my ma and, you know in a sort of unconstrained way that you are and then writing an essay on uh secularization um and there's also you know it's not the sort of most sexy or exciting thing but there's also a real methodological concern that's animating the book um which has to do with the kinds of things we have been saying about secularization religion um and modern modern life but which relied entirely on data you know, complex, rich data working with religious groups and almost entirely ignoring non-religious groups. And that kind of fundamental sort of methodological disjunction um, has really animated the book and kind of given rise to a really wide programme of research, which the book is a part of and um, looks forward to and so on.
1: Yeah, it's quite interesting, actually, that the book makes... uh not just a kind of methodological intervention and raises questions about the sort of social life of methods, as it's sometimes been called, but it also has uh, an important theoretical contribution, I think, which is about rethinking modernity. Um, And and the point the book kind of begins with is the idea that uh, we've maybe made a mistake about modernity and its secularness, and we've perhaps conflated what it means to be modern and the evolution of modernity with rising secularity. So I wonder if you could kind of unpack these terms uh, to begin with. So what are we talking about when we're talking about modernity? What are we talking about when we're talking about uh, secularism? And why, in turn, has that been ignored?
0: Well, you're absolutely right to say that modernity and secularity have been um, tied very closely together uh, in thinking in general. But throughout the history of sociology, which is my discipline, the two have been seen for most of the history of that discipline as absolutely intrinsically tied, possibly tied in different ways, but tied together, nevertheless. Um, and the book is engaging with that idea. Um, I think to the extent I talk about modernity, I'm sort of engaging with those discussions rather than providing a sort of new theory of modernity, um, engaging about in, with that particular kind of story about modernity. Um, to the extent that I use modernity in kind of analytical terms, I just, I have in mind a quite kind of simple notion about a period of time that's defined by industrial um, industrialization, um, certain kinds of uh, media which define the kind of politics we have and the kind of social arrangements we have. And, you know, I don't undertake a kind of wide critique of the concept of modernity, just that particular relationship, which has actually been crucial to, to that idea. The idea that modernity as secular has actually been widely critiqued over the last 15 years. I'd say the 21st century is quite a helpful um, dividing line in terms of that unpack- unpacking that, that relationship. And if anything, we've moved really far in the other direction. So we now have the claim that modernity isn't secular. Um, I, think, I think it would not be correct to say that that's a unanimous conclusion, but there are definitely kind of mounting consensuses around that view and texts will foreground their discussions with this assumption that these two things are now totally unassociated with one another. Um, uh, Modernity is perhaps uh, uh, post-secular rather than secular. Uh, Modernity is perhaps defined by um, very vibrant forms of religion and so on. And that body of work is really important and it's, you know, very insightful and, uh, you know, important inroads have been made what I'm doing in the book is hopefully building on that by shifting attention to, to the big big numbers of people who are non-religious and the kind of phenomena that in some societies are religious, but in many societies in the West and the societies we've typically thought of as modern, so the industrial societies and the hyper-mediated societies and so on. These societies often, not all, but often have large numbers of non-religious people in them, and those kind of religious moorings that we've seen in the past or in other societies aren't there. And that requires explanation. So we can't just sort of leap to noticing the, the important role that religion plays in industrial-mediated societies without also, um, I argue, concerning ourselves with this this fact. So I think, you know, I, when I wrote the book, I used... Um, uh, Phil Zuckerman's summary, which was to say that the number of people um, who say they're non-religious, so non-affiliates, is uh, count, means that that group count as the fourth largest religion, so to speak. Um, and I've since read and a revised up um, version of that, which is to say it's the third largest. Wherever you place it, we're talking about um, millions of people around the world and uh, who we need to understand in their relationship with religiosity, and modernity, and for me, that demands attention. Mm. Just, you know, just at that point.
1: Yeah, because yeah, because those sorts of categorizations render them essentially undifferentiated, as if um, everybody is without religion or is secular in completely the same ways, and you know, is experiencing these things in the same ways. And I think that the book actually does that in a, in a range of different ways, both through senses of identity, sense of collective belonging, material practices, mediated um, ideas. So it, it's quite an interesting intervention into that debate. I wonder if we could do a bit more on terms. So obviously you're dealing with a range uh, of different ideas around uh, non-religion, around secularity. um, And at the beginning of the book, um, in the first couple of chapters, you you, you introduce some distinctions between insubstantial secularity, as you call it, and um, substantial uh, secularity. Um, And you also try and tease out the difference between the secular and the non religious. And I wonder if you'd say a bit about those categories.
0: Yeah, I mean, we're at a stage where we are trying to think about what the concept of the secular means and becoming aware that we've used that without much reflection um, or, you know, very deep conceptual theory and so on. And um, uh, I saw a a researcher point out that um, Charles Taylor, who's been one of the most, the foremost voices in the field um, in 2009 he contributed a foreword to an edited collection in which he point he said that at this stage we've reached a socratic mode of wisdom uh, whereby what we know about secularity as a concept what we mean by the term is that we don't know very much so we've got a point where we've clarified our confusions um and what and i have cited this um uh, that quite widely but what 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 this colleague was pointing out was that he wrote that in 2009, which was two years after he wrote his sort of monumental tome, his 900 page book, A Secular Age, which has um, been extraordinarily influential in the field. So if, if Taylor's still saying we don't know what we're talking about, you know, we need to take very seriously that we are unclear about this concept and treat with a degree of scepticism anyone who has a confident sense of what it means. And certainly treat with skepticism any account that doesn't say explicitly what they mean by it. And we still have a lot of the discussion is filled with people using the term, not specifying it. And I, you know, uh, count myself as an expert, at least someone who's immersed themselves in this concept for years and years. And I'm often reading work where I don't know what the author means by it. What I draw attention to, apart from that general point, um, is the way in which the concept of the secular operates in two fundamentally different ways. The term's used in lots of different ways. But in calling one version of that insubstantial and one substantial, what I'm trying to point to is um, two, I think, incommensurable uses of the term. So on the one hand, you have the use of the term secular to mark um, the absence of an empirical phenomena, any kind of religious practice positioning and so on. And we use the term secular just to measure how far something's moved from that. That's the form of secularisation that Charles Taylor talks about when he talks about a subtraction story. So we're just talking about the subtraction of religion. It's about absence. And then on the other hand, we use the term secular to to identify a whole range of empirical phenomena. So um I think probably one of the most obvious cases would be non religious cultures like the new atheism or so on. So these are, you know, real and existing, present, concrete empirical phenomena that are part of political discourses, part of social discourses, part of social life. And we would also term those secular. And these are fundamentally dissimilar things. One's about the presence of things. One's about the absence of things. And that's what I'm trying to draw attention to um, in that chapter where I'm exploring the the insubstantial notion of the secular and a a more substantial notion. The turn towards non-religion as a concept. um, I mean, that's a pragmatic, uh, an analytical tool that I've developed um, in order to start talking about clarifying this distinction for the purposes of res- research um, primarily, and then I you know, hope there's wider utility to that. The non-religious, um, I, like colleagues in the field, have been very influenced by Colin Campbell, um, who's a sociologist um, and emeritus professor at York. And his work, he's best known for his work on consumption, but actually his early work, and that sh- and some later work as well, um, but his his doctoral research had to do with humanist organisations in the UK, and he published a book in 1971 called Towards a Sociology of Irreligion, which was not as prophetic as we now, you know, <laughs> wish it might have been. But um, I mean, actually, it was very prophetic. You could look at it that way. Um, uh, but it was a slow, slower start. But it's it's a really great book, and it's a, you know a touchstone for researchers in the field. And he uses the term irreligion, which he um, uses to demarcate cultures that are about the rejection of religion, actions and perspectives are about the rejection of religion. Um, And that seemed to me to overlap with a lot of the things we are identifying as in terms of the substantial secular and to be broad enough to, as you pointed out, to open up the possibility of, of seeing these positions as very heterogeneous and learning more about those differences. I then sort of broadened out from that, um, because I think that the kinds of um relationships with uh, religious culture that I was encountering weren't always about rejection, or at least rejection wasn't sort of uppermost in those experiences. So um for some people there's a very strong sense of their difference from religion that they used to articulate many of their own beliefs and which give shape to their practices and their responses to things but those responses might be much more kind of about curiosity and so on so i just you know the concept of non-religion is just broader and it allows us to think about i don't know a magnetic pull kind of working in different directions the idea of rejection to me is sort of suggesting a kind of repellent relationship between this religious other and this non-religious subject whereas actually what we're sometimes encountering are people who have a sense of their difference but that really draws them towards religion and it's the basis on which they create kind of meaningful relationships with religious cultures and religious people and so on so so that's where i've come to that term
1: we might think about that in a range of different ways um, and uh, as you do throughout the book in terms of um how non-religiosity is social uh, about you know people's identities um about the kind of particular existential cultures that build up Uh, around uh, individuals' beliefs and their kind of sense of themselves. But before that, I'm interested in the thing the book does, which is a kind of classic sociological move of effectively kind of pointing out what we take as sort of normal, taken for granted, everyday um, cultural practices all around us actually need a lot of thinking about. So um, in the third chapter, you talk a lot about how advertising, public campaigns, graffiti are infused with kind of, the materiality of non-religion, but almost people don't pay attention to it in religious terms and they don't categorise it as such. Um, and so we get, um, I suppose, a kind of a, a sense of the significance of these material forms almost in their everyday taken for granted. So I wonder if you could talk through that idea.
0: Mm, yeah, well, I think a lot of the, um, the kind of story that's running through the book is are about kind of thinking differently about the secular and there are kind of two threads to that. One is to, to notice the way in which there are substantial forms, um, sort of real and existing instances of what I'm calling non-religious forms. Um, and on the other hand, to resist really intellectualised notions of what it means to be non-religious. So the ways we've thought about um, when we've identified the secular as something substantial, we've tended to really focus on its intellectual character um, and um, it's often pointing out how visible that is in in the way that um, we tend to differentiate or pair rather religion um, and atheism, which you know is a illogical pairing, but it's incredibly commonplace. So we don't talk about theism and atheism, which is a logical pairing, or religion as not and non religion, as I might suggest we do. But um, what we're doing there is acknowledging, you know, we've come to really recognise the kind of diversity um, of forms that go into what it means to be religious it's not just about our beliefs and so we don't normally talk about theism and theology as the starting and the ending of what it means to be religious when it comes to the secular atheism seems to be sufficient um and that's bound up with the idea that we're normally atheism's about a kind of intellectual rejection either the idea that religious claims are implausible or that they're perhaps immoral or so on so that kind of um, narrative is something I've been exploring and then ultimately resisting as a result of my research. And um, in the chapter on material forms, it's about kind of drawing attention to the way in which um, non-religious cultures might be manifest in the material world. And, you know, so the first kind of thing our thoughts turn to when we think about um, non-religious cultures might be things like the the books and television programmes associated with um, the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and um, Hitchens, Harris and Dennett and, and so on. Um, but that's those are bodies of ideas. I'm trying to think beyond that, as you say, using kind of classical approaches from sociology and anthropology, I think. Um, and, you know, so if, if we take that move, all of a sudden we might just think about a book, um, Dawkins, The God Delusion, as a physical object that's mediating social relations in the real world. So when I was going into um, House's people's houses in the course of research or for research um, you might notice these sorts of books on shelves and they're the kind of background to the social interaction that's going on they're supposedly not not very relevant um, but they are sending out messages they are um, someone coming into those spaces is is generally aware of all of these cues together and we use that to understand and position people and so it's about that kind of shift from the way in which these things might operate kind of in the background, but be incredibly significant um, from a sociological perspective. Thinking about how that might be really significant is, is not surprising, but it is surprising in terms of how we think about secularity. Those kind of backgrounds, as you mentioned, graffiti, um, take up a large part of that chapter. And I'm interested in the way in which they might at once be in the background, um, but be very significant in terms of structuring social life.
1: One really good example of this comes in the next chapter, actually, where you talk about clothing. And I wonder if you could talk about uh, clothing um, as a kind of specific example of how this works.
0: Yeah, well, clothing um, is interesting because it's these, these backgrounds, but they're not quite in the background in the same sort of spatial way. We carry them with us and the, the clothing we wear is um, very sort of plays a very kind of intimate role in our identity construction in a way that kind of books on our shelves might, might not do And um, so I highlight the way in which um, non-religious cues might be expressed in clothing. I suppose that's one of the kind of most explicit forms of um, embodied practice that we might associate with non-religion. Matthew Angelke, who's an anthropologist at LSE, um, and he's been doing ethnography at the British Humanist Association, um, he's charted similar things. So um, we're both drawing attention to things like slogans on t-shirts and um he actually talks about tattoos that are used to to um, demonstrate non-religious positioning um i've been working outside of those kind of more explicit contexts with sort of people who don't join in the british humanist association meetings but who who would say if you ask them yeah i'm not religious and i'm very interested in those sorts of people Um, they're not always the t-shirt wearers although they sometimes are you know you can open any kind of broadsheet that's trying to sell you stuff on the side as they're increasingly doing and you'll be sold banned T-shirts and non-religious slogan T-shirts. They're really very commonplace. Um, we don't think of them as controversial. They're really part of our social life, certainly in the UK where my work was situated. Um, but I also draw attention to kind of more ambiguous cases and there's one example um, from a conversation with um, Jean who um, talks... About a necklace that she was kind of compiling using lots of religious symbols, and there's no kind of non religious symbol on it, it's nothing of that. I don't know if Jean knew that of the happy humanist symbol that she might have got, I don't know if you can get that in necklace form or so on, but she wasn't thinking in those terms, but she was thinking about ideas she had in relation to religion that were bound up with her own identity as non religious. But very good example of someone who's very interested in what religious cultures have contributed to. Society, whilst also having a very clear sense of herself as different from that. So she's then, um, you know, hoping to wear this necklace. In the end, she abandoned it because it was too expensive a project. She struggled to get these images, which might say something else about secular society. But um, she's wearing this necklace that appears to be a set of religious images. And from the outside, we might read that in those terms and ascribe that kind of meaning. Um, actually, for her, the sort of non religious meaning was emergent from these images. So again, she's, she's wearing these clothes but there's much more subtle cues going on um and the and the book is really trying to open up our sensitivity to these possibilities so that we can start documenting cases where they might emerge
1: i mean well, one of the ways these um sense of identity come through is how people actually identify you know whether they call themselves atheistic non-religious indifference and and, and I'm really interested in, 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 in what that tells us about the act of doing social science, because obviously surveying people you know, forces them to take on these particular identities and position themselves mm. in relation to these categories when actually, you know, they might be a bit more complicated, as you show in chapter six.
0: Yeah, I mean, I always take an optimistic view with these kinds of data and think they always tell us something, you know, we, we can critique. We can be often very wrong about what we think they're telling us, but they're always telling us something. Um, and so, yes, on the one hand, um, people have noticed the way in which we've had very limited categories in relation to the non-religious in surveys. And that prompted the non-religious to identify in certain ways. So the category of the none, N-O-N-E, I should say, whenever you say that and you're talking about religious work, you need to make it clear which kind <laughs> of nun we're talking about the NONEs, the nuns, have become a big group, especially in American sociology and American public discussion and so on. And that's clearly, as um, uh, Frankel Pasquale points out, that's clearly a concept that arises as a result of surveys. I mean, no one's going to say, hey, I'm a nun, without having been put into that position by social surveys. But on the other hand, um, I talk about the way in which non-religious category, the, the category non-religious as an identity label I mean now, has some meaning for some of the people I spoke with. Um, you know, it has to do with a sense that I'm not religious and there's some there are some reasons for that that I have um, but I'm also if those reasons are for example about being um, resisting dogma as religions you know, people who are associating religion with dogma, um, about openness and individualism and so on are the term non-religious is really appealing in its apparent genericness. It's not actually being used in a generic way. It's being used quite precisely to describe a a specific orientation, but in its apparent genericness, it's appealing and people use it quite a lot. Um, Actually, the number of people who identify simply as not religious, you know, it's quite a commonplace discursive trope and, and it means something. So I think, you know, on the one hand, um, we can be aware that we've had very limited sets of terms associated with um, this non-religious group, and we tend to offer very limited options, and that's that's a problem. So we don't know when people, the number of people who say they're not religious on a survey, we don't know how many of those are of this type that I've just identified, who are kind of a sort of postmodern into openness and tolerance and so on. Um, we don't know how many are in that group as compared with the spiritual but not religious group and so on. So our surveys definitely do need to get better. But on the other hand, the qualitative research um, is showing us what kind of categories work and the uses that people are putting them to, whether they began as as survey categories or not. Um, You know, people develop these categories for themselves as well. I mean, I think there's an interesting issue here to do with how surveys work in individualizing contexts um, and there's always going to be a struggle when we're sort of offering kind of bounded identity um, answers when we're dealing with people whose cultures aren't institutionalized in any concrete way and I think there's a really big methodological question surrounding that that people are engaging with in lots of different areas um, you know the contribution we might make that arises from this discussion is to sort of take seriously Apparently, generic categories in those in social research and um, allow people to have those options. So, what I have seen happening is, while people have come to recognise that we might need to offer more developed categories for for non-religious people to identify themselves on surveys, what they've done then is throw out the non-religious, the kind of generic category, and offer us you know a sort of option like typical denominations, whatever it might be, iterated in different ways, but you know Christian, Muslim hindu and then atheist and humanist and lots of the people i'm talking with wouldn't identify as an atheist or a humanist and they they would identify as non-religious so what i suggest in the first instance is we might just add the non-religious category with these other differentiated categories but then we might read that over to the religious category too what would it mean to include a general religion you know just to say i'm religious alongside the dom- denominational categories would that help us um, also the spiritual would that help us kind of capture these positions that Are concrete and meaningful to people, often to some degree, um, and which this sort of narrower set of options we have might not be getting at.
1: There there are sort of three or four different categories you've outlined. That, and one of the ways the book closes, and this links back to also a a chapter in the middle of the book, is the idea of there being kind of particular existential cultures that actually cross over and have similarities between groups that we might identify as being religious, being spiritual, being non-religious and, you know, having similar experiences, both um, in broader existential culture terms, which is Mm. the term you like uh, in the book. And also in terms of their kind of sociality as well, which is something that you talk about in in chapter five. So I wonder if you could maybe say a little bit about what existential cultures are and maybe how this works in in social terms to Mm. show us the similarities between the religious, the non religious, the spiritual, the humanist, etc. Mm.
0: Yeah, the final chapter is on existential cultures, and it's sort of in some sense the the endpoint, at least in my um, sort of journey with the research and um, my sort of subsequent research is really exploring that this area in more detail. Um, how I get to this notion is through trying to chart in the book the different kinds of distinctions that are being made um, in relation to religion in order to build up a richer picture of these different um, non-religious positionings, but also to think about why people are positioning themselves in that that way. Um, Possibly the the bulk of the book is really charting these different positionings and trying to capture some of that heterogeneity. But this underlying question of why people are positioning themselves, that's the sort of... Um, next question to some degree and something i touch on in this chapter in existential cultures and there are lots of reasons that people position themselves as non-religious um there are lots of social reasons and political reasons and people might be reacting quite specifically to um current you know scandals in relation to a particular religious group that's going on in the media at the time or um um, geopolitical factors which are increasingly uh, reference religion and position themselves in relation to that, um, and those positions might might you, you know be have very little to do with um, existential cultures, but some of them do. Some of them have to do with the existential, um, and I'm just using that term to identify um, practices that have to do with the nature of human existence um, and humans' uh, exploration and um, of that area. So, you know, basically kind of birth, marriages and deaths, sort of like where we come from, the nature of the life course, where we go at the end. Um, And the people I'm talking with don't always identify these things in relation to religious cultures, but that doesn't mean they haven't thought about these things. So the notion of existential cultures is just intended to try and capture that and make a bit of space in our research for those areas. So, um, uh, you know, Giddens, for example, says that with the decline of religion, we're losing existential rituals and that's a massive impoverishment of modern life. Um, I'm trying to think about, pay closer attention to the kinds of existential rituals that might be emerging um in relation to these non religious groups, um, and study that empirically, you know, become a, a sensitive to this this existence and question really Giddens' view that those rituals have disappeared um rather than changed the focus on cultures is that you know thinking about rituals is um helpful for pushing towards my calling them existential cultures rather than the existential so Um, because what i don't want to do is reduce what's going on to a matter of belief so Mm. people have thoughts about where they come from and uh, where they go and where where you know where their friends and family go and they're experiencing bereavement and so on but equally, they participate in cultures around ideas to do with that. And actually, it might not be a matter of thought that's the most important thing. Um, we might be participating in existential cultures through going to um, uh, a humanist wedding of a friend and thinking very little about the meaning, um meanings associated with that, but nevertheless participating in the kind of cultural life, the visual tropes that are emerging in humanist wedding ceremonies and so on. So what I don't want to do is kind of offer a kind of rehabilitated version of a really belief-based mm. approach to religion and non-religion. But what I do want to do is acknowledge um, the significance of this area of life and, I guess, describe it in relation to a set of beliefs or identify that that, that orientation in relation to a set of beliefs.
1: Well, it's in keeping with the rest of the book's focus on things like materiality on the social world, um, you know, on sense of identity that it's not just a matter of saying people have beliefs, therefore they have rituals, yeah. but rather there are a range of practices, material objects that come together to um, form these senses of non-religion. I'm, I'm interested in where um, you're going next with the book. Um, obviously I, I mentioned you are directing a non-religion and secularity research network. Uh, that was recently um, a co-edited book uh, on secularity and non-religion um so what what's the kind of the next steps in this in this project because obviously this book is I think, the beginnings of mm-hmm. something much broader you know it's a kind of agenda setting text
0: yeah i mean the book and my work has tended to be kind of programmatic in that way and one thing you know one ongoing um area of activity has to do with other people's research and um uh working with the the network um and other with the journals um Secularism and non-religion journal and book series and so on that's sort of proliferating around this area um, to support that work. There are, are, you know, once you've identified a population of um several million people and then given reasons, as I hope I've provided some in the book for why we should be looking at this population, um, um taking this population seriously in research, then you know that we're talking about a major kind of field of activity uh, that's well beyond you know we need. We need, researchers, we need researchers around the world focusing on it. I think one of the areas of real interest at the moment is in cross-cultural research. Um, so the first research has emerged largely in Europe and North America um, and especially in Anglophone regions of those um, spaces. Um, and to some extent, I think, Protestant and post-Protestant regions especially. So um, I don't think it's even true to say that we have any sense of non-religious cultures around Europe as a whole um, so that's a big you know I will be doing everything I can to support work that will help us understand the way in which these cultures are contingent and um, uh, mapping them really in these sort of global terms so that's one line of work and then you know as I said the, the notion of existential cultures is something I will be exploring in my own work um, I see there there being potential in that notion um to sort of broaden lots of work that goes on in religious studies or religious sub of sociology and anthropology and so on um and think much more inclusively about non-religious and religious options within them and i think that's quite an exciting prospect um sort of similar to the kind of move from um a focus on um, Women's studies, we had, and then paying attention to masculinities, and then moving to gender studies. And it, you know, just broadens the field, but also the kind of being able to study men and women side by side opens up a whole new set of questions. And I just think is um, where this field should be going. I mean, you see that a lot in there's a, a demand for that in policy and law as well. So, that increasingly, there have been directives from the EU asking us to pay attention to religion and belief. And by belief, they mean non-religious belief. But clearly that term is really, really woolly. I mean, everyone who uses these terms knows they're woolly and there's a kind of um, interest in being able to take more inclusive approaches, the religious, the spiritual and the non-religious. Um, so I see the exploration of existential cultures as one way of pushing that and kind of, that sort of questions forward.
1: Thanks for listening to New Books in Critical Theory. On this episode, I was talking to Dr Lois Lee, about recognising the non-religious, reimagining the secular, published by Oxford University Press in 2015.